Extraordinary Moms podcast. I'm Jessica Dahlquist, your host, and every week I interview a different mom who shares their motherhood journey and the lessons they've learned along the way. If I've learned anything from interviewing such a wide range of moms, it's that no two moms parent in the same way, and we should celebrate that and learn from one another. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today, and if you like what you hear, please share the show with a friend. Hello, everybody. I am so excited about today's episode. My guest is Tiffany Rosenhan. You might know her as the author of the brand new young adult novel, Girl from Nowhere. Have you seen that fantastic cover anywhere? I bet you have because it's been all over social media for the last few months. Tiffany is a mom of four young daughters, and today we're talking about her road to authorship, how this book, Girl From Nowhere, came to be. It might surprise you, the whole story. But also we're talking about her husband and his dramatic health scare uh, in the last two years and how she's been managing now his, his chronic illness and you know, life changing on a dime for them really is what it comes down to. So we talk about how that's impacted her parenting and her perspective on life. She is just such a delight and I loved hearing about the process of her writing fiction work. Usually I interview nonfiction authors, so it was so fun talking to a fiction author. So I'm so excited for you to get to know better, Tiffany Rosenhan. All right, I'm so excited to be chatting with Tiffany Rosenhan today. Hi, Tiffany. Hi, Jessica. My pleasure to be speaking to you, a real live fiction author. You're my first fiction author. Oh, how fun. Yes, I know. I've talked to lots and lots of authors now, but usually, you know, it's all in the nonfiction slant or spirituality slant. And uh, so I just have so many fiction questions. Congratulations on this is (laughs) Girl From Nowhere is your first book. Is that right? Yes, thank you. That yes. is so... It's my ex- first book. And it's funny you say that about fiction because I feel like for me, fiction is just the way I... It's it's my nonfiction view of the world. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so. we're going to dive deeper into that because that that's just super fascinating. Because I love fiction where I do feel like I'm transported to a real setting with real characters and I'm actually learning a little something. And because you have a lot of international scenes in the book, I felt like I was getting kind of a glimpse into those countries and, and whatnot. Um, but yet still I knew that this is all just made up, but I, I did feel transported. So you obviously did your research. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Yeah, for well, sure. I think I didn't think about this before writing necessarily, but as I began the writing process, it was really important. Excuse me. It was really important to me to treat readers to an experience. I guess that's how I view this type of fiction that I particularly wrote. Is it's escapist. Yeah. So it's not supposed to be like a deep dive into a particular theory or ideology or opinion or um, movement. It's just supposed to be fun. And yeah. that's hopefully what you found in that a little bit too. <laughs> it, it, it absolutely was. Well, let's just talk about the book right now. So Girl From Nowhere, it is a young adult fiction. Is that what you always wanted to write was, was fiction novels? Yes. So I kind of fell into writing Girl From Nowhere for fun. Um, just while my kids were sleeping, it was entertainment to me and it was fun to do the research. And as you can tell, she visits a lot of countries and speaks languages and there's some espionage in there and so it kind of merged all the different topics that interest me into one story but when Sophia first her voice kind of hit me 
she was always a teenage girl. It was mm-hmm. never a question of being, of her being an adult when this book took place or of transitioning the story to a woman in adulthood. So I always gravitated toward young adult fiction when I read and when I do read currently. Um, so it was natural for her to be a young adult character, but at the same time, um, most it's really hard to do spy fiction for teens because it's obviously such a jump in your suspension of disbelief. Yes. But I feel like that's kind of what makes it fun. So it was a tricky balance between making it mature in the sense that the content was based in the real world. A lot of the things I discuss are real world entities and real world dynamics and the relationships between those who practice tradecraft and those who possess weapons and terrorists and government organizations. That's all real. And all of those, uh, all of those networks exist in reality, you know, like with Axel and his side of the story, that's very real mm-hmm. and they do that. And so I put a fictional character in a real world setting and then added a lot of hyper reality to make it fun. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's, and that's what I'm talking about. Like you can tell how well researched all these things were. And it's interesting to hear that these are just all of your different interests and curiosities that you were able to feed through that. And you have four daughters. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And so was this strong female protagonist kind of an example that you wanted to give to your daughters? Or what do you want the protagonist in this story to say to teen girls and your own your own girls? You know, I think I get asked this a little bit and I I still don't know if that I have the best answer. But for me, Sophia represents a hyper reality of who teen girls really are. She's obviously skilled in these ways that are extreme and ludicrous and playful and interesting. Um, but I wrote in my acknowledgments, and this is how I view teen girls, is they are skilled in that way. And teen girls are multi-talented and multifaceted and very disciplined and driven. And Sophia Hepworth, the protagonist in the story, is just kind of representation of of these skills in an extreme environment. But the teen teen girls I know and my daughters, I hope they, well, they do have these skills and I hope girls are inspired to claim kind of their, their talents and, and the things that, that interest them and become very good at them and not be afraid of that. And so my girls, I hope they see the best in themselves when they see all of these things that Sophia has because she's fiction mm-hmm. and she's meant to be a little bit of a superhero and that's okay. I want, to acknowledge that she's not that different from teen girls either because mm-hmm. she's basically just been trained in a certain way and she's hardworking and um, she's had this experience which shapes her, but that's not too different from all the teen girls I associate with. They work hard, they learn, they struggle. And Sophia, the character is just more of a extreme end of that spectrum, but she's, also just a teenage girl with a complicated life. And so right. I hope my girls kind of see the best in themselves and embrace their own talents, even when they're quirky and different. Yeah. Um, well, and don't, and all maybe, teen, you know, don't all teen girls feel like they have complicated lives, right? And so I do love that Sophia is this right. representation of growing up in an environment that while there's cool things about moving around and developing these like spy skills and ninja skills and all these cool things, right, right. like – there's definitely drawbacks to that lifestyle. And we see that when she settles down in America. I mean, teen girls have got to feel that too, right? They've got to feel like they're kind of a prisoner to their circumstances sometimes. But seeing oh, how that. she's yeah. able to to overcome 
those challenges and spin it in a way that, you know, kind of works in her favor a lot of times, or at least makes the most of it. I can't think of a better lesson for, for all of our children is, is to learn that, you know what, you're not going to be immune to challenges. You don't always get to pick what life throws at you, but what are you going to do with it? And I think this I is a great depiction of that. Yeah, for sure. That is so amazing. So you wrote it kind of in your fringe hours of your kids growing up, which I just love so much. So did this, how long did it take you to write Girl From Nowhere from like start to so finish? I, oh, I, I feel like I can never answer that because <laughs> it was written alongside so many other stories that I was writing. Mm -hmm. um, so when my girls were little and my husband was in residency and then fellowship and then starting a business alongside starting his practice and working I was alone most nights, um, if not, you know, 90% of nights. And so for me, it was the way I spent my time after my children were asleep because uh, it, it interested me and I liked writing and I just did it for fun for years and years. And so I, I really just wrote characters, whether this was Girl From Nowhere or other books I've worked on, that I that really entertained me, I guess you could say, and mm -hmm. that I could do a lot with. So it's, I never really intentionally set out to write a book. I just, if anything, I just, every single, my nap hours, which I was lucky I had good, I don't have great sleepers, but I had good nappers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> but I, uh, you know, it's, I have to pause here and say, it's funny because 2020 in this last year has made me reevaluate all of my habits and everything I've ever done to write as I think it probably has done for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So let's just pretend that, that this would still work. But mm -hmm. when my girls were napping and then when they put them to bed at seven or eight, I would have a lot of free hours to myself. And, you know, if obviously my husband was home, we'd spend time together, but, um, that wasn't very frequently. And so I just enjoyed getting out a pen and paper if I was creating or a laptop, if I was really writing hard, like dialogue and just tell stories and, mm girl from nowhere evolved and it was the one I just was the most interested in and I would keep staying on top of even though other stories like I have two historical fiction ones that I think are so fun and I'm still not quite ready for them to see the light of day yet but they're they've been so fun to work on over the years and they interest me and it's so fun to research and develop characters in this totally different um, timeline so I kind of balance between or bounce multiple stories at once, just depending on my mood, I guess you could say, and hmm. how deep I want to dive into I mean, like a scene I'm working on or something I need to learn about a tactic or a, uh, anything really. So I kind of just did a lot of them. So I started writing when my oldest is now 14. And when she was a baby, I just started writing pretty much every single night and I never stopped. So Sophia kind of developed over the years. And, you know, I know the exact point she came to me, which was long before I wrote the story. But I was in Taiwan with my twin sister. And we were we were there for the summer. We were 19. And we had, we'd stopped at the night market, which is a very, like, chaotic, vibrant. I mean, it's just a, a market, but it's all outdoors. And very light. Very, there's so much, like, there's just so much going on. There's light and noise and music and food and vendors. And it's just very, very a lot. Mm -hmm. But we loved it. We thought it was so fun. But at one point, we kind of got lost and separated. And for that split second, when I was, I say I was in an alley. I'm sure I wasn't in a cold, dark alley, but that's how I remember it. <laughs> 
and I couldn't find my sister, I really panicked. And I, I was not prone to fear like that, but I panicked for that moment. And then I was like sprinted back and we collided and we were fine. And, but in those few moments of being alone, I really had this like vision almost of this character that was myself. It was me and my experience, but it was really hers. And it was this question of, I knew what she looked like. And it was, who is she running from? Why? And how is she going to get away? Hmm. And those three questions just kind of never left me. And they started to build around this character that would become Sophia Hepworth. And that was the first moment I really saw her. And then her story just felt really fun to me. And to backtrack even further, what you said about teen girls, um, I empathize with Sophia a lot because I moved around frequently as a child and I always wished I'd had a more exciting answer than my parents are divorced and we just move a lot. <laughs> like I didn't know. There was nothing like glamorous in my situation, but it was a lot of moving and it was back and forth in different schools frequently and et cetera. And so I I really feel like I got lucky because I have I do have an identical twin sister and so I didn't deal with the necessarily trauma that might become with those situations. We were always had each other and I, I thought it was fun. But I had the experience of constantly being new and having to adapt and having to learn and make new friends. And I had a positive experience in doing that, but I also know how it felt to go to a new place and to be an outsider and to not have grown up with the same group of kids and to know that they all have known each other for so long and you can never connect with them in that same way. Mm. And that was very that really resonated with me, those emotions. And so Sophia definitely, I, I put my part of myself into her and I just made it a little more, far more, far more fun and exciting of a life history to, to have a reason for all the moves. But yeah, I love that. Like you didn't have that exciting reason to move, but you did, you did have this similar no. experience. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is the, the vision in your head of why you're moving, like right? Yeah. Side. Exactly. Oh, that's fascinating. So while the rest of us are watching Netflix at night after our husbands are still gone, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you're you're creating this uh, right. whole whole other alternative world. I love it so much. That says a lot about my you know, choices. My goal in 2020, which is funny, my I, my goal in 2020 was to watch shows in Netflix because okay. I feel like I've been so far removed from pop fiction for so long, and it's been kind of fun. I have to say, what did so you find? What did you find that you loved? Um, I don't know if I should be saying this on teen podcasts. Um, You're good. Well, I did just finish The Last Kingdom, which I loved. Mm. Uh, I like everything. I love Schitt's Creek. I yep. love Outlander. I don't know. Anything that's well told, I'm yeah. kind of a sucker for. Like if the story's yeah. a story. My biggest issue with the way we write TV now um, is there's not an end. They don't. They go on. The reason... They go on very long. They go on for a long time and they continue to have seasons, which is fine. And I understand the reason for it. But as an, as an author, a primary focus that I maintain for everything I write is every story, in order to be a story, it really has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And when we have shows that go on forever, not these shows I'm talking about, but just in general, yeah. you don't ever have an ending. And so I'm impatient with a lot of TV, even the ones I mentioned that I like, because I... I want to see the ending. I mean, the whole point of the beginning is to reach the end. Right. As far as the story is concerned. Yeah. So you set up these things, but then you don't get to experience the ending, which is kind of what you love about a movie, um, is the ending when everything comes together. And so I get impatient with a lot of TV on Netflix or wherever because there, there isn't an ending. 
And so your commitment to the story changes over time because at least mine does. It just Um, keeps going. No, I know. I'm, I'm rewatching. I'm rewatching. Yeah. I'm rewatching Grey's Anatomy right now. And goodness knows there is no end in sight. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I get it. It's a different way to, it's very different than a book because Mm -hmm. a book is very much setting up. I mean, I know the ending long before I write the beginning. So Mm -hmm. I I don't know if you ever saw there was a TV, um, I think it was the BBC Masterpiece or PBS Masterpiece, one of the two. And it was a four part episode called North and South. I've heard of it, but I have yet to watch it. That's on my list. Well, it's one of my favorites. It's old. Uh Um, It's it's, uh, the North and South of the UK, Uh not not Civil War. Um, But it's four episodes and the very last scene, it's like, everything built toward that scene yeah. and it's this I don't want to give it away but that struck me as how powerfully they worked four episodes toward one scene right and I think that's very hard to do and I want to do that as a writer I want to because it's so rewarding like you don't like it is so satisfying to watch that because it's been wait you've been waiting for it for so long, but not knowing how it would happen or if it would happen. Mm-hmm. And as a writer, I want to build that suspense and then deliver. And so I, I, I get my inspiration. I can get it from film and television, but oftentimes it's from from books. I yeah. feel most inspired by books. So I spend a lot of my time reading, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a that's a great point. That's a, a great differentiator. And if you're feeling like you're in a phase of life where, you know, things are kind of just going on and on and on in general, maybe watching on and on and on shows is not, it's continuing right. to feed that kind of instability. And maybe you just need to like ha- watch a tidy movie or read a tidy book. Right. So it's like wraps like up, I right? Want the payoff of yes. into a show. I want to have, the Actually, I do think Shit's Creek did a very good job of being ending. That I, was actually I agree. an ending, which I loved. Yes, um, I agree. I don't, I not count that as not having an ending, but yes. most, most shows. And so, yeah. But yeah. I, I also feel like 14 years ago when I started just getting my laptop out to write, I don't even think we had DVR or TiVo. I think we, True. maybe I had like TiVo where I could record shows, but just basic, basic. I think I recorded Friends on TBS mm-hmm. and maybe that was it. Like yeah. there was nothing on TV. <laughs> totally. Oh, so, TBS. Like, yeah, even hearing like channels, station names and stuff, it's like, oh my gosh, like that was our whole childhood. Yeah. But kids right. just don't even know about TBS well, I don't and... know if I, like, I honestly can't say if I had had Netflix available or these options to watch shows, if I would have um, written the way I wrote That's because true. I would have had other options. And I really don't felt like I had much else to do. I didn't, yeah. there was, I, that anyway, was your hobby. So yeah, it was a hobby and it was so fun. And I'm really grateful because now I have the habits established that I crave, yeah. but I think it, there's so many distractions now, uh, particularly with this year that it's hard to maintain those habits. So I'm I am no expert on how to write right now, but I'm working on it. Hey everyone, I wanted to jump in and thank a show sponsor, and today it's Thrive Cosmetics. Thrive Cosmetics are products made with clean, high-performance, skin-loving ingredients, and their clinically proven formulas not only highlight your best features, they actually improve your skin over time. It can be so hard in the beauty industry to find these types of products, but Thrive Cosmetics really takes all the guesswork out of it, and you can know that anything you're ordering from them is top of the line. 
I just started using a few of their products and you guys, I've been blown away by the quality. First, their Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. This is their best-selling mascara. There's literally one sold every five seconds and there's a reason for that. Having over 11,000 five-star reviews, it is flake-free, smudge-free, clump-free, and you know that dark shadow underneath your eyes from a lot of mascaras, this will not do that for you. I love this mascara so much. Also, their Brilliant Eye Brightener. You know I'm not getting very much sleep right now with a newborn at home, but you guys, this is my secret weapon for tricking others into thinking I've had a perfect night's rest. There are 13 universally flattering, shimmering shades, and this highlighter stick makes it extremely easy to apply and blend. I'm no makeup expert, but even I look like I know what I'm doing with the Brilliant Eye Brightener. And they have tons of other products too, like their Sunproof Lip Balm, their Bright Balance Cleanser. There's so many things to choose from, and I want you to give it a shot. Thrive Cosmetics has a bigger than beauty mission. How for every product purchased, there is a commitment to support nonprofit partners with the donation of funds or products. And it's truly unique and inspiring. And it's just a beauty brand that goes beyond being skin deep. They truly care about their customers and about the world as a whole, which I absolutely love. They adhere to all the clean beauty standards without using toxic ingredients. You can feel great about the quality of these ingredients and they are never testing on animals. I could go on and on, but I want you to try it for yourself. Try Thrive Cosmetics by going to thrivecosmetics.com slash EMP for 15% off your first order. This is an exclusive offer that you can only get here. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash EMP for 15% off your first order. Thrivecosmetics.com slash EMP. Let me know what you get. I'm so proud of you and, and you know, putting, publishing your first book, especially when it's been such a long time coming. That's just got to be you. so exciting for you. And I really hope that we do get to see Sophia again in sequel form or at least, you know, see some of those other characters and stories that you've been you know, ruminating over well, for sure the last so. 10 years. Yeah. Cause you do. <laughs> I know. And it's kind of fun. I think there's stories that come just split. Like I've had other stories that I've worked on that I just love and they come so fast and they're so easy to work on in a way. And this story has been far longer and it's been, a, but I also don't want to lose that process of just thinking it over because I, in many ways, that's kind of where the magic happens is when mm. you kind of have time just to like sit on something. Mm. So, yeah. Well, so I don't undervalue that. Yeah. So this past year for everybody who's listening, we can all identify like it has been uh, unprecedented as much as that word's overused. It's just, right. it, it's caused us to really reevaluate a lot of things. And then for some like you, there've been additional circumstances, both launching this book as well as a personal struggle that your family's been through. Your husband, very young, 41 years old, yeah. he suffered a stroke. Yes. Oh so, my gosh. Tell me. Yeah. Well, no, I, I, um, yeah. So I guess I could go into that a little bit. So he, I signed with Bloomsbury in September of 2018 and was working on my deadlines in February of 2019. So two years mm -hmm. ago now mm -hmm. he, um, he came home Well, he was home on a Monday morning, which is very rare. And he called me and he's like, I don't feel good something's wrong. And I'm like, this sounds really weird. But I knew I, he was, I mean, hence the stroke, but he was operating on like two to four hours of sleep and all of that. Wow. And so I'm like, you're probably tired. So go home and sleep and I'll be right there. 
And he's like, yeah, I don't feel good. And he, and anyway, so I go home a few minutes later and the situation very quickly unfolds and get, we get to the hospital immediately with a colleague of his and it was a huge hemorrhagic stroke. Um, and, um, I mean, for example, on the image scan, if you look at the image scan of his brain, the blood clot takes up about a fifth of his brain. Wow. So it was very dangerous. Time was of the essence and we transferred him to a different hospital and, um, he, I had a miracle happen <laughs> and the bleeding stopped on its own quickly and he had brain surgery five days later and then he spent the next few months recovering. So it was a very, very sudden change of life. Rap- I, I mean, it's just, it's instantaneous. And mm-hmm. I remember the feeling of walking into the hospital and I walked straight toward the ER because his, I ca- let me backtrack. When I knew something was wrong and I got home a few minutes later, I called his friend who had taken over Brandon's job of, as the director of the ICU at St. Mark's Hospital, our local hospital. And I called him and I said, something's wrong with Brandon. And he was like, what? Put him on the phone. So Brandon says to him, hey, I know you, but I don't know your name. No, <laughs> so the guy, gosh. our friend said, Tiffany, I'll be right there. I'm running out of Costco. And I'm like, you're running out of Costco? What is yeah, He's this is tired. serious. Yeah. <laughs> and then he, and about 10 minutes later, you know, less than that, he got to my house and Costco's about a 15 minute drive. So he wow. sped rapidly, which frightened me that he was, he was concerned because ICU doctors don't panic. They mm-hmm. don't overreact. They're very calm. And to see my f- husband's friend be very, very concerned and moving very quickly alerted me to how serious this was. Right. Um, I never knew it was, I didn't know it was a stroke. It wasn't like I called him. I was like, Oh, Brandon's having a stroke. It was, I knew something was seriously wrong and I knew who to call. Mm-hmm. And that's like, those are the promptings I received was who to call next, what to do. And I don't feel like I had to have any answers. I just had to know what step to take next. So he went to the hospital. I followed him in my car. And by the time we got there, they'd had this, they, he said to me, I'm, I've already called in the stroke team. And that point I was like, wow. Oh, this is a stroke. <laughs> like, like, Oh, that's what, that's what's happening. Like the dots connected. I just hadn't thought stroke before. I didn't know it happened so quickly Wow. So in the hospital. I knew running in, it was as though as I was walking to the hospital, it was this, everything has changed. And as I was walking to the room, it was this, everything is changing. Excuse me. Everything is about to change is what I felt walking in. And as I entered the room with the scans, it was like everything is changing. And then as soon as I saw the scans, I knew everything had changed. Yeah. And it was just this one, two, three effect. And at that point, it was just very, very intense in the ICU. And he'd been a director there for a while and had been there at the, previ- at the hospital that morning, actually, meeting with the someone. And so the whole ER filled up. Right, <laughs> I bet. Like, what's, what's he doing here? Because he... He's like a beast of a man. I mean, he's just very like fit and healthy and strong and hardworking. And just, it was just such a surprise to so many people. Um, and then we had a few moments where I have an identical twin sister and we kept accidentally punking his colleagues. Wow. <laughs> so, so he transferred to the hospital and then surgery, like I said, and months of recovery. Um, so that happened. And then we, we actually went away to Europe for four months. Um, he'd been recovering for about six months and was just, not getting better. Um, but there was also not much we could do besides all he needed was time. Yeah. At that point, we'd had so much therapy and his brain just needed time to heal and sleep. And it really wasn't happening in our environment because he looked like he was better, but he wasn't. And so the demands upon his time and him were just, 
out of control in some regard. And I don't think he knew how to say no or um, focus on his own health. That was very unfamiliar for him. So we actually just pulled our girls out of school back when everyone thought that was crazy. Now no one would bat an eye. Um, <laughs> you know, you could hardly imagine it then. So we just pulled our girls out of school completely. We took some math books with us and we went to Europe for four months. And that was amazing, which I can go into later. But then when we got home, he start, in January, he started having, this was January 2020, he started having some complications and we didn't quite know it was wrong. And in August, he started having grand mal tonic clonic seizures which if you're familiar with are very, um, his are very intense. They're very physical. They're long. They're very ugly looking. They're just, wow. it's a lot to take on. Um, so then he couldn't, and then he continued to have the seizures. And um, so he couldn't drive for the last nine months. And recently he has permission to drive again and he hasn't had a seizure in six months. So yeah. he is crossing our fingers doing far better now um, oh. and will be for the foreseeable future. But it's been, the seizures were scary because um, his, like I said, were so, they're just so big and they're so dangerous and they, uh, his brain is so delicate that the risk of other complications is increased sure. exponentially. So we feel really lucky. We're in a really good spot now. And that has definitely added a layer of um, complexity to our 2020 years, all his health. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, he's doing really well now and um, we're grateful that we have had the time we've had as a family and we don't really know brain trauma is a tricky thing because you never quite know what you're dealing with and for the rest of his life he'll have brain trauma it doesn't just go away and so we'll never know we always know that there's a risk involved with most activities and most circumstances and and his own health is you know paramount because he requires his brain requires so much and it's so hard for him. Mm. He's never been idle. He's never been stationary ever. Mm. And so it's really a challenge for him to manage his own health um, in that regard because he's just stubborn and doesn't want to. He wants to just do what he wants to do and not take it easy. Um, so that's been a humbling process to force you know, himself to slow down. But wow. uh, yeah, so that's, that's that story and he's doing really well and I'm grateful for great. I mean, it's a miracle he's doing as well as he is. So yeah. We're just taking it one day at a time. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to hear that he is he is doing better now, but I'm so, so sorry for all that you have been through. That has to be so oh, hard. Good. And Thank you. And I think what is so hard for so many is when you're going day to day and you have a certain relationship with your spouse or with your kids and with life, and then like you said, like in the blink of an eye, everything changes. What did that teach you personally about kind of setting goals or envisioning the future or clinging too tightly to the security you feel in in day-to-day -day life knowing that now you you know firsthand nothing is promised things can change in the blink right. of an eye I mean for me I'm a very spiritual person so a lot of my like commitment and my perception of these circumstances is rooted in my own like personal spirituality mm -hmm. where I feel so much hope and I'm naturally an optimistic person. I think that, for example, um, the two things I felt in the, before we went to the ICU and we were in the ER and things were happening very quickly, my, I had two thoughts when I saw the scan and it was Brandon is going to die and it will be okay. Or Brandon is going to live and it will be okay. Uh. <laughs> and those were just my two thoughts. And that was 
I've never been one to panic. I didn't panic then. I still haven't panicked. I just, I'm very calm. I don't know why I just am, um, in these situations. And so I think my, I was very much at peace with the whole thing and I was scared obviously and unsure. And there was a lot to be afraid of, but I, I just felt like it was out of my control and I personally put it in God's hands and I knew that I was doing everything I should be doing and can be doing. And I think with so many circumstances, whether it's an extreme traumatic one or dramatic one that, you know, mostly dramatic, um, where there's people running around and there's decisions being made and you're, it's, you know, there's hospitals and all these situations that can, it's very visual what's happening. But Mm -hmm. I think in any situation we can only control so much. And I personally felt like I didn't have to know what to do. I just knew I only had to know what was the next question I needed to ask Hmm. because so often finding the right solution to the next immediate question, it was just one question at a time, one solution at a time. I didn't have to know the outcome of the stroke or what his long-term prognosis looked like. There was so few things I could control that the only thing I could control was what's the very next, what's the next step and just put blinders onto everything else because really it's one step at a time and I personally felt like no matter what situation, how it turned out, it would be okay. Hmm. I didn't know that it would be, he'd have to relearn how to speak and relearn how to write and relearn how to read and not be able to drive and all these things. I didn't know because I'd never done before and every situation's different. So I really didn't dwell on the what ifs or the what might it look like. I only dwelled on what's the most important next step we have to take and put my attention toward that and ask the people I needed to ask and get the right answers and focus on just the next step because dwelling in all the possibilities and scenarios, excuse me, as scenarios, and maybe it's the fiction writer in me. Mm. I mean, you could dwell on those and create circles of totally fantastical, so unlikely to occur events. And you can live in that. You can live in the what ifs. And I just don't want to live in the what ifs. I want to live in the present and I want to appreciate what we have right now. And I felt so grateful for the team. And because he is a doctor, Brandon is a doctor that he has colleagues that are, I mean, they just rally around him and rally around me to help me solve these problems. Um, we had a big situation where we couldn't decide whether or not to proceed with the brain operation. There were, um, two different opinions. One was proceed and the other was not and let the proceed, remove the, remove the blood and then let the brain heal. The other option is to not interfere, not have a craniotomy, and let the blood dissipate on its own and absorb on its own. So we had some serious decisions to make because if you go into the brain and you bump something and you do something, it's permanent. And there's a lot of risk involved with a craniotomy, even a small one like that. And so, and even during the entire time we were making that decision, I just felt like the only thing we could do is make a decision. Right. And hope for the best. And at some point, it was just completely out of my control. I felt like there was, and I and I guess that's the message I took more than anything else is control what you can and ignore what you can't or have faith in what you can't because there was very little I could control in all this. But I know that my reaction comforted my own family mm-hmm. and the reactions of others comforted me. And I just truly didn't feel like the outcome was going to turn out any differently based on me wanting something more than the uh, more than something else because I just had faith that it would work out 
and whatever, however that worked out, I had faith that it would be okay. And so those are the, just the preeminent emotions I had. Um, and that, you know, the, the stroke was hard, but the recovery process was far harder. And I remember when we finished the brain operation, the neurosurgeon, the neurosurgeon said to me, well, now the easy part's over. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> this has been a crazy week. And wow. he was right. The easy part was over. Um, but at the same time, that night was really, that, that was the hardest night probably of, that was the most painful night because he was in so much pain because the brain has so many nerves in it. Or sorry, excuse me, the skull has so many nerves in it that a brain operation is just very painful wow. to recover from. Um, but we finished that. His stroke was on a Monday and on Saturday, I said to Brandon's brothers who had flown up to be with him, um, that was the most terrifying yet completely incredible week of my life. And I really did feel that. It was the most amazing week because I think without without struggle, we don't know joy. And without trials, we don't value happiness. And so I, I think without the super lows, we would never have experienced those amazing spiritual, personal, emotional friends the highs we felt among our friends and family in, um, during, during that, throughout that week. And so I just am an optimistic person. I believe things are going to turn out for the best. And if we view them as turning out for the best then they do, and I just, I don't, this situation affirmed to me, my mother's, um, advice just to not dwell in negativity. It just does no one any good. And I'm really grateful that she taught me that. And I hope, I hope I, executed that throughout the last few years but if there's one lesson I learned it's just I can only control so much and I have to have faith in everything else Hey everyone, I hate to interrupt this incredible story, but I wanted to thank a show sponsor, and that is Love Every. I've talked about them before, but this subscription toy box is literally unlike anything else on the market. Watching your little one learn and grow is the best feeling in the world, isn't it? But finding the right toys to help their development and also knowing how to interact with them, especially in those early months and years of their life, it can be really challenging. And so that's why Love Every is so amazing. Their play kits are designed by experts for your child's developing brain. So you can literally choose their developmental age and choose a kit tailored to their exact stage and the toys are just perfect for them at the right time. They have quality, one-of-a-kind activities and playthings that are built to endure plenty of play, they'll last forever, and they come with a play guide. So parents are empowered to know how to use these tools to help their child to enjoy the playtime and to learn along the way. I got a little baby kit for Cooper and I love these little crinkly mitts that you put on his hands and he's not quite to the point where he's able to grasp onto things yet, but he loves hearing sounds and you know playing with his hands. And so putting these little crinkly mitts on has been so fantastic. There's also play cards with black and white images that also evolve into colored images, which is perfectly developmentally appropriate and so many more things. There's also a songbook. You guys, Love Every has thought of everything, and I'm so grateful for this. It makes a perfect thing for your family or the perfect baby gift. So take the guesswork out of your child's play. Choose Love Every today and get free shipping when you sign up to receive your play kits at loveevery.com EEP. That's L-O-V-E v-e-r-y dot com slash e-e-p for free shipping loveevery.com slash e-e-p 
take a little picture of your little one playing with their kit and tag me. I'd love to see them. Well, I want you by my side in a crisis. You sound like the ideal yeah. person, but man, the level-headedness and and you're so right. And do you know Jansen Bradshaw from Everyday Reading? I'm sure I you do. do. Yeah. I do know Jan. She posted the other day something that kind of sparked this in me when you were talking. She was um, addressing um, guilt as a mom specifically, but she was talking about how, you know, you can either decide to choose to play with your kids and then play with your kids. Or you can choose not to play with your kids and decide, I'm not going to play with my kids. And then don't. Like, you don't dwell on the things that are opposite of the decision that you've made. So you just have to make the choice. And that's what you're saying. Like, either he's going to live or he's not. But either way, I'm choosing to believe it will be okay. And it's not going to be, being okay is not contingent upon the outcome, right? It's just, I'm choosing that this will be the outcome for me. I can't choose the outcome for him, but I could choose the outcome for me and we will be okay. And I think that takes you so, so far in life. And I can only imagine how lucky your girls are to to have that, <laughs> that mindset, you know, instilled in them that, you know, there's so much beyond our control, but the more we spin our wheels thinking about what's beyond our control, the more energy is just sucked out of us to just be present, to be content, right. to be happy, to be appreciative in the moment that we do have. And I love that. Yeah, that's that's incredible, Tiffany. That 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 really is amazing. How did you help your girls through that time aside from kind of, you know, this mentality? How did they process all of this? Cuz that's got to be hard seeing your dad, you know, in one way one day and then completely different the next well two things first well the hardest the hardest day by far in the last two years was they hadn't seen him after the stroke and the night before the brain surgery they came to the hospital and when he couldn't look at them and say their names that was the clincher to me like wow this is real (laughs) that's a very scary thought to have a relationship with a dad that could no longer say your name and he was smiling and they were happy and it was, but it was, that was the moment that it really felt the possibility of them, of him being very different for the rest of his life and their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the moment it hit me hardest, but you know, it, he learned to say their names again. So things worked out, but that, that was the hardest moment for me, um, watching them go through this. The rest of it, I think they're very, I think kids are resilient mm-hmm. and knowledgeable and I've tried because this is maybe how I come, how it comes, it comes more naturally to me to just communicate the truth to my children. I've never been good at lying or making stuff up on the fly about, (laughs) you know, um, when they ask about whether it's body parts or other people or make a comment, it's, I've just always answered honestly with them. And probably I was a little naive sometimes to do so, but from the entire, from the very beginning, they knew exactly what was going on. And they were kind of like, oh, okay, well, I guess we'll just say some prayers. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just don't think they have context, but I think they knew the truth. Um, so they didn't understand what everything meant, but they knew what was happening. And so I owe, um, to answer your question, actually, how did they cope? I, my identical twin sister, we lived two doors apart. Oh, and fun. they basically <laughs> moved in with her. They moved in with her for about six weeks. Mm. So. <laughs> They coped because she's amazing. Yeah. Well, what and, a gift. What a no. gift that is. 
Yeah. <laughs> so they kind of thought it was the best six weeks ever because my sister's house is the house of fun and games. And um, she's, she's incredible anyway, but really she just comforted them and nurtured them. And luckily, luckily they're, they have two moms in a lot of ways. And so they did it. It, it, it's not as though they went to an aunt's house and they mm-hmm. didn't feel me. It's they were at my twin sister's house, who was their second mother. Yeah. And so they didn't feel. I mean, unless unless they haven't communicated to me, but <laughs> I think they they really felt um, just as much nurtured and loved as they would at my own home because that's the relationship they have with my sister. So they were very fortunate, and we we're all very fortunate in that regard that they. I didn't have to think about their needs for about six weeks. Yeah. Um, I check in and I give them kisses when I saw them, but really I knew that they were in better hands with her and my brother-in-law for the time than they were with me. So I could focus on Brandon, um, and his needs. So what a gift. I, I don't wow. think that's even a fair answer because most people don't have an identical twin who can replicate <laughs> them when needed. Yes. <laughs> so that is, but that's exactly. So I, I, I don't take any credit or responsibility for how my girls wavered the crisis so well. I owe it all to just having a twin sister who stepped in and did it. Oh, that's, that's amazing. And you know, she's not the only one. That's the thing too. People are, people are incredible. And I, I've learned this. I was definitely along the lines of, um, I'm very good and self-sufficient. I don't need help. Mm. And this situation really taught me that I do need a lot of help. Um, but the great thing is people serve and comfort you in such unexpected, unique ways that are unique to them. Mm. And that was really inspiring to me when you're in a situation where people feel like they want to help and support and love and show their love for you, moms, women, and particularly like I associate with young moms, cause that's my demographic right now, but even many older women and men, they reach out in such special ways. And I think of all the little things that happen, but it's just a reminder to me of how each of us have, when I circle back to what you asked about, like Sophia and these characteristics and um, we all have these characteristics inside of us and it's so inspiring to me to be on the receiving end of so many different ways that people share their talents mm. and to share their love. And it's not just simple dinners or, you know, drives to the hospital. It's so many, di- there are numerous ways that we can, um, that we all have talents and skills and we share them in we don't have to all be the same. The great thing is because people are so different and they're the way they serve and love is so different. I was surrounded. I was like the center of a wheel and I had, you know, a perimeter, a circle around me of people who are doing things for me and our family and all different people have different capacities and different ways that they can support. And that's just, again, a reminder of our differences make us so special. Um, but that was what was really, really inspiring to me is just seeing all the ways people can show their love. Um, that was incredible. And I'm really, as hard as it was to accept constantly, I'm really grateful for that experience. And I cherish it. Yeah, it really is special to be on the receiving end of service, especially when typically you are probably the giver, right? And you just realize what yes, a two-way... Yes, where I feel more comfortable. <laughs> yeah, same, same. But service really is a two-way street. And to be somebody that denies other people the opportunity to serve them because we think we have our act together or we don't want to burden people or whatever it is. We're just like, oh no, we're fine. We don't need dinner or whatever. Sometimes you really have to be bulldozed over by life to let people in and allow them to serve. And then what a beautiful friendship and rapport is built and an opportunity is built when 
you you let that two-way street happen and yeah I've, I've seen that time and time again um and that's really beautiful that is so awesome well you know, I, just, I bought a yeah. I bought a huge pile of thank you notes and I started writing them and I'm like I don't even know who these go to like yeah <laughs> so many things happen that I wasn't even aware of um which is now it always makes me feel a little bad, but I, I like to think that they were happy to serve whether I finished that's right. and whether I knew about them serving or not. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. Wouldn't you like, yeah, you just want to swoop in and, and do, do what you can do just to ease their burden regardless of, yeah, whether it's acknowledged or not. But yeah, you just need to put like a poster out front. Like if you did anything in the last two years, like, thank you. We, we couldn't thank have done it without you. you. Yeah. I love that so much. Okay, so, I mean, there's just so much we could talk about, but where can people find uh, Girl From Nowhere? It is a great book to read as an adult. It's a great summer read. I just finished it and loved it so much, but it would be great um, for your kids as well because it's young adult fiction. It is appropriate through and through. It's exciting. It's, you know, it really does transport you, like you said. So where can people find your book? Well, thank you. Um, So I am available pretty much wherever books are sold. My local bookstore is called the King's English Bookshop here in Salt Lake City. Um, so that's available there. Mm-hmm. Signed copies are there. However, it's available on Amazon, probably the easiest, um, Barnes & Noble, Target, um, that, that's, or, or your local bookstore. If you go Yay. to your local bookstore, they should have it. So wherever you are. Is it? Um, what is it? What so is it's it? published by Bloomsbury, so they yeah. do a really great job of making sure it's widely available. Um, but yeah, if you want a signed copy, King's English, the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City has signed copies. Thank you. Okay, what is it like I to walk like in? It. What's it like to walk into a bookstore and see your book and your name on a book up on the shelves? What is that? You no, know, like? it's fun. I feel like my because I debuted during COVID. I'm just now a year after oh. the book's debuted, starting to actually promote it in a significant way. Um, and go into bookstores because my, my bookstore has been closed. So it's yeah. been different because I, I didn't have that like moment where I went to the bookstore and saw my book. I mean, I felt my, I my books in a box, but everything was so shut down when I debuted that I'm now kind of seeing those, um, having those experiences, which is fun. So I have to say it really, I'm trying to think of the moment that like it struck me most. And I think it was when I was on a shelf with, um, just I'd been on the shelf with all the Utah authors and then they put me on the shelf where I belong after like the monthly promotion or whatever. And I was just sitting there with the other, my I, the book was sitting there among <laughs> other books that I've, have inspired me and I've read and it was just kind of fun to think, wow, all it takes to publish a book is really to write and mm-hmm. you just have to write and it's attainable and it's universal. And there's, no, we talk about all the barriers to publishing, but ultimately it's just about writing and that's what I still cherish most in the whole process is just me and the words on a page. And to me, that's what books are. They teach us and they inspire us, but, um, it was just fun to remind myself that this just came from putting my girls to bed and sitting down at my laptop and just writing and telling stories. It was, there was no secret. There was no like ulterior motive and trying to accomplish a certain story or whatever. It was just, me and my own imagination. And it's kind of fun to think what can be done if you apply yourself, um, particularly someone like me that's more of a creative. Mm-hmm. Application's always a struggle. And so it's it's rewarding to think, wow, anyone can do this. You can write a book and it can be 
can be a story that can transfer other people. It's kind of magical. I always think it words is. are magic. They are. Um, how we can enter a different universe just through words on a page. So, so cool. it's been fun. I, oh, I, I'm really grateful I have this experience. And now that I'm physically in the spaces more, it's even more fun to really feel like I can participate and be an author because it's yes. been it's been a weird year. So. Yeah, yeah, that must have been a little anticlimactic. Like, okay, a few months in, then you finally get to see it in a bookstore. But hopefully, the next one you can you can bust through those Barnes and Noble doors. Been off for all the authors, yeah. all the debut authors this year. It's all a weird totally. year. Totally. So, but you've, you've you've given people at home a lot of companionship with this book. So that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Well, Tiffany, I always ask my guests just one final question, and it's this: What would you tell your pre motherhood self? It's a hard question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would just repeat what my mom told me, which I think I've already said to you, which is it will be okay. Things will work out. And just believe in yourself. Yeah. I think things will, I think things work out. We're so hard on ourselves in so many capacities. And particularly if we talk about, we can't even go into talking about the social pressure we feel, but just internally, what our baby does and doesn't do and our toddlers do and don't do. We're so hard on ourselves, and at least I am. Mm-hmm. And I, my mother just always says it will be okay. And she's right. It will, it's always okay. Yeah, it really <laughs> so is. I, I reiterate those words to myself and have more confidence in my own abilities. So yeah. I probably can think of 10. I, I could probably think of a hundred things I would tell my former <laughs> self, but <laughs> yeah, but that's a good, I do that, a good I, place I do that every day anyway. I'm like, Oh man, but, I think just continuing to believe that things will work out. If you do what's right and you act like honestly and with integrity and if you have confidence in yourself and treat people with respect and kindness, I just, I feel like things work out. So I I, at least I hope that's okay. Cause I have, pre- I do not pretend to have any parenting advice. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's crossing awesome. my fingers on this one that things work out. But yeah. I do, I do believe that. I do believe that I'm an optimistic person. So I think, I think yeah. things work out for the best. We just can't predict how that will unfold. Right. Thank you so much, Tiffany, for sharing your story, your motherhood journey, your book. I hope everyone will pick up The Girl from Nowhere if they haven't already. I saw a lot of buzz about it um, in the last few months, and I just hope that it continues to get Thank in more so people's much. hands because it is so wonderful. Best of luck to you and to your husband's recovery as well. Thank you, Jessica. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. You too. Tiffany's so awesome. And there's just so much more to her story than even just what she came on to talk about, which is her book, Girl From Nowhere. So for sure, pick up Girl From Nowhere. It is the perfect summer read. And if you have a tween or teenager, it's a great book for them as well. Perfectly appropriate and just the right level of excitement and thrill without it being creepy or anything like that. So Girl From Nowhere, pick it up wherever books are sold. And if you're in Salt Lake, get that signed copy. That would be so fun. I will link everything at ExtraordinaryMomsPodcast.com. And if you don't already follow me on Instagram, you can do that at JessicaDahlquist3 or on Facebook at Extraordinary Moms Podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. And we will see you next week for another episode with another Extraordinary Mom. Bye.